This is the show for those who want to live strong in business, life, and family. Welcome to the Warrior Her Podcast. Hi, I'm Rochelle Porter. I am the founder and creator director of Rochelle Porter Design. Hi, Rochelle. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Warrior Her podcast. So I want to jump right into your backstory. So for my listeners and anyone who isn't familiar with the podcast, I always start with the backstory. It's not highlighted enough. It makes, it matters, right? It makes a difference in and really connecting with the person on the show. So Rochelle, if you can just kind of tell me where you're from. Sure. So I was born in Guyana originally. And when I was five years old, my family moved to Brooklyn, which I loved. And then we eventually moved to Atlanta, which I didn't love as much. So (laughs) the first chance I got, I went away to college and never came back until pretty recently. So how old were you when you moved? to Atlanta? I was about nine when we moved to Atlanta. And it was like the saddest thing ever for me. Why? Because I I loved Brooklyn so much. Um, Just being a city kid was, it was me, you know, before I knew anything about art or design or whatever, I just absorbed the culture and the colors and, you know, just being from a West Indian background and living in Brooklyn, it was kind of like being in a place where you didn't have to explain yourself, which is very different from how it is in the South, which um, I, I've grown to love the South, but um, at the time it was tragic for me so- to leave. It's funny you say that because I'm in Florida and most people, Mm -hmm. when they think of Florida, they think, oh, Miami. And it's like, well, mm, most of Florida is pretty Southern for people who don't realize that. And I happen to be in more of an, uh, like a rural area that is still very Southern in many ways. Mm. And, uh, it's just, it's interesting to, to hear that, you know, you went from New York to Atlanta, but. Atlanta has changed a lot recently, right? Absolutely. It's changed so much. I mean, it was still like the late eighties when we moved here. So before the Olympics, it was an entirely different place. Um, Definitely not as cosmopolitan or international as it is now. Um, There's a ton of um, Caribbean people here now. Back then you could probably count it on one hand. So it's, is night and day from what it used to be when I was a kid. And do you have any brothers or sisters? I have a sister. Older, or younger? Younger. And she lives here as well. And so you, you moved to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. You're struggling with, with the fact of the, just the change overall. You go to college. Where do you go to college? So my first year of college, I went to Georgia State, which is in Atlanta. Again, I was miserable. Um, eventually, you know, some things transpired in my life and I was able to transfer to Rutgers in New Jersey. So that's where I ended up graduating from in undergrad, which was like life-saving to me. And 
what did you study when you were there? So I was an English and history double major, much to the chagrin of my West Indian family where you, you know, you have to become a doctor, lawyer, engineer or the equivalent. So um, already I was like the black sheep <laughs> just from choosing my major. What is that about their like West Indian culture that you have to kind of fit into one of those boxes? Um, I think it's immigrant culture in general. You know, people from, I hate the term third world, so I'm going to say developing countries, you know, they have to sacrifice a lot to even get to the United States in the first place. So if you come here and you, you know, you bring your kids here, they better do something that is going to be worth the sacrifice. That's going to guarantee a certain income of quote unquote, better life. And, you know, the tried and true ways to do that are, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, and anything outside of that is a little foreign to them. Sorry, the audio broke up just a bit. It was a little slow. Okay. So at what point, because you're now back in Atlanta. I am. So at what point did that happen? <laughs> ah, um, I've actually been back here for, God, it's over a decade now. And I never actually intended to come back. Um, honestly, it's a it was a blessing in disguise because I don't think my company would exist or my life wouldn't look anything like it does now if I hadn't come back. So after I graduated from college, I moved to New York and, um, you know, I was, I was living life, you know, as a like 22 year old in New York, living it up. And I got this job right out of college. So I mentioned that I was an English and history double major, how I got a job as a computer programmer is still kind of beyond me. It's still kind of comical to me. Um, but around the time I graduated and I'm dating myself, it was like, do you remember what was happening in Y2K, you know, with the huge yeah, everything's scare? Gonna, yes. Yeah. And the world was going to end, you know, unless you fix these two digits in the computer program. So I actually got a job doing that at a pretty like prestigious investment bank. Um, and I got that because of, you know, those expectations. It, it was bad enough that I majored in something that was quote unquote useless, but this was my chance to redeem myself and to, you know, prove to my family that I, you know, was not a complete failure or that my choices were not terrible. So, you know, I got this quote unquote good job. Um, making really good money for a 22 year old, you know, got my first little apartment in Brooklyn. And, and what was, was that? What was that what? really good money for, for 22? Oh, oh God. Back the then it was probably like, it's probably like $40,000 or that something. That is pretty good but for 22. Was, yeah, that was, I mean, maybe now it's pretty good still. for. I a still think it might be pretty good. Yeah. But back then it was like really good for a 22 year old. For a 22 year old liberal arts major, it was unheard of. Phenomenal. So, <laughs> and, you know, I'm taking the 1%. So, you know, I thought I had made it and it had arrived. And when I started working the job, I was completely miserable. Like I hated it so much. And that should not have come as a surprise to me, but it was what it was. 
anyway, um, end up eventually quitting that job. A few years passed and I actually pursue um, documentary filmmaking. So I enrolled in grad school for media studies and um, I got what I thought was my dream job right out of grad school and it completely crashed and burned within a few months. And I ended up moving back to Atlanta on a really sad note. So you were disappointed when it ended? Well, not to get into the weeds of it, but it was, I was kind of um, sabotaged by a coworker. And that was kind of my first time experiencing anything like that, like being stabbed in the back at work. Um, and, you know, ended up losing that job. I think the same day I had like a eviction notice on my door because it was probably like a year and a half after graduating that I even got a job. So I was kind of underemployed, you know, in New York City, which is not fun for a year and a half. And I was just starting to catch up on bills when I got that job. So it was just like all the awful things happened at the same time to me and ended up moving back home as a result. I bet if that person's listening right now, they feel really stupid. <laughs> they but, should, but I, I don't really care. You know, not that. Right. Okay. I think that sometimes in life we have to be able to kind of rub it in a little bit. I mean. It doesn't have to be mean. It's just kind of like, huh. Look at yeah. me now. Basically. <laughs> look at all the terrible things yeah. you've done. Yeah. And did. And now look at me. Like, now look at mm-hmm. me. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's important. You know, I, I wanted to do this for people to hear your story because mm-hmm. I knew there would be some hiccups along the way. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing that's, that's in life. You know, people may see your success and think, oh, she just because of this, right? She just was able to do this because of this or because she knows somebody or because, and it's like, well, hold on a minute. She had to go through some stuff too to get where she is. So Mm -hmm. if you're willing, I would like to hear a little bit more of that period of struggle and what you were going through. Was it just financial? You know, do you think it was because you were also unhappy at your job? Um, I think it was everything put together. Um, I was in my probably mid twenties at the time. So, you know, there's that quarter life crisis where you don't really know where you fit in, where you're trying to figure out your future at 25, 26, 27. And I was in the throes of that in addition to having lost a job and been almost evicted and having to move back home to a place that I never wanted to come back to. So it was kind of the perfect storm. Um, And when I moved back here for the next two years, like I couldn't find a real job for the life of me. Like I was temping here and there. I was, you know, doing contract part-time work. I was underemployed. And I was also living at home with my parents. So it was like, it was pretty miserable (laughs) for those few years. Um, And when I did find work again, it ended up being a job that I hated. And I noticed that eventually was a pattern. Like I literally hate, or at least strongly dislike every job I've ever had. So 
maybe it's time to think about doing something else. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it looks like, but I know I can't do this forever. And then when, when in your life does Rochelle Porter designs become a thing? Um, very, very recently in my life. <laughs> so I have no formal design background. Um, I've never really been to design school. Um, never thought it was anything I could do, but through a series of very strange, and I call it supernatural events, it just kind of came together and it really happened over the course of several years. So, like I said, I come from this background where, you know, being an artist or a designer is not an option. So it's not anything I ever thought of. Um, all I knew was from the time I could hold a pen or a pencil, I doodled on literally everything I could find, any blank surface, whether it was a piece of paper or a table or a wall. Sometimes I just felt compelled to draw on it. And it wasn't something that was a skill or a talent in my eyes. It was just, it was just what I did. And um, that, you know, starts in elementary school and it continues to work. You know, so when you're at work and you're in these super long meetings and you have a legal pad in front of you, you doodle. Um, and that's just kind of how I passed the time. Um, I'm trying to think of the first weird thing that happened. So first I should say, when I was at that original computer programming job that I really hated, um, I knew I couldn't quit because I had bills to pay at the time, but I knew I was creative-ish. I would never have called myself an artist or a designer or anything, but I knew I liked to make stuff. I like to draw on things. So on a whim, I took uh, this three-day class. It was an intro to fashion design class at FIT in New York or Fashion Institute of Technology. And um, we went to, I went to the first class and it was fun. It seemed nice. I went to the second class and the instructor told us that if we wanted a career in this industry, we'd have to send our designs overseas to China to get made. So immediately what I thought was, okay, so sending designs to China. So that means there's going to be some child labor, some human rights violations involved, you know, pollution, just terrible things all around. So I was like, I don't want to do this. Keep in mind, you know, that's what I knew at the time. Of course, there are ethical factories all over the world, including China. But at the time, that was kind of what I knew of that industry. And I knew I didn't want to be part of it because, well, A, I don't want to exploit anybody. And B, I'm not a designer anyway, so it doesn't matter. You know, it was just kind of a class that I took on a whim. So um, didn't even bother showing up to the third class. And that was kind of it. And, oh, sorry, were you gonna ask something? No. Oh, okay. I'm just listening. So, so yeah, so um, that was that. Um, fast forward 12 years later when I finally am at the point where I have to move back to Atlanta. Um, I'm, you know, in all these jobs that I don't like, just not happy about anything at the time. And I take this class again, kind of on a whim but I felt led to it somehow. And it wasn't, it was an art class, but it wasn't an art instruction class per se. It wasn't teaching you how to draw or paint. It was more about your heart as an artist. 
like what does it mean to be creative and you know what do you have to give to the world and it was very you know hippie and kind of woo woo but it was life-changing for me so I met this woman in the class and she's a friend now but at the time I had no idea who she was and she just kind of looks at me you know, we're doing a group project and she just looked at me and she's like, I feel like there's something that you put down a long time ago, but you're supposed to pick up. I feel like God wants you to pick it back up because you put it down because you thought you couldn't do it, but you're supposed to pick it back up. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? You know, it's like now it seems to make perfect sense, but back then it literally could have been anything because I had picked up so much stuff in that 12 year span that she could have really been talking about anything. So but I think it's I, important too, you know, that mm-hmm. you tried a lot of things. And I think especially now, you know, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship is like really popular. But mm-hmm. what a lot of people don't talk about is the the in-between, right? They don't talk about that right. in-between area where you were like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I know it's not this, right? I I kind of feel in that area. So I relate with you in that regard of, I have this career and there's things that I want to do, but I'm also unsure if, if that's really what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And I I just want to highlight that for the women who are listening, because it's not over just because there's a fork in the road. It's definitely not. It's probably just starting if there's a fork in the road. Yeah. And, you know, what do you think, like, what would you say to yourself if you could go back 10 years and, and talk to yourself? What do you think you would say? Um, I would probably tell myself to relax <laughs> more than anything. Um, I think I was just so stressed trying to figure out my future and figure out my life instead of you know knowing that it would just kind of flow if I let go and if I listened you know if I listened to all the clues along the way all the little like breadcrumbs that God throws along our paths like they're there you just have to be at a point where you pay attention to them and I had to get to that point to get where I am today and I'm just getting started frankly so you took this class approximately what time frame was this this was this was about 10 years ago okay and you 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 were inspired by this woman who gives you this advice I was not inspired by her at all not 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 inspired by her you were yeah you were just given a little a little god wink like here right you should be doing this okay so now 10 years ago no I didn't think I should be doing anything I just thought it was a random thing that somebody said okay but like so what do you do from that point to now get to where you are? Sure. So that incidents like that incident happened probably 10 more times for me to actually be at the point where I was listening. So um, weird things, like I would be getting on a flight and the Delta agent looked at my passport and said, your name sounds like a clothing line. And um, random people would come up to me and say things about fashion or color or art, or they saw me doing this and that. And finally, it started to gel. It's like, okay, this is no longer a coincidence. God, 
what's up? I'm listening. What do you want me to do with all this? But that's how much it took because a, this is so foreign to me when I say I had no aspirations of doing any of this. Like if you had told me 10 years ago that this is where I would be, I would have never believed you. A, you know, B, I hadn't, I was supposed to be something um, serious and important because, you know, you grow up being told that you should be this. So none of this, it, this is still surreal to me that this is even my journey, but at the same time, it's, I can't imagine doing anything else. And, you know, you were getting it culturally, but also mm -hmm. socially what's acceptable, right? As women, yeah. as women of color, we're supposed to fit in this box. We're supposed mm -hmm. to do this and say this and act this way. And there's so many societal expectations of us that it's very easy to get lost in that and, and trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing? Right. Yep. Yeah. And, and not disappoint everybody else. And not disappointing everybody else and not waste all the money that I paid. You know, I went to grad school and undergrad and I have loans for degrees that I'm currently not even using. But, you know, you feel also the pressure to um, make good on that or to not have any sunk costs for the education that you paid for. So it, it was coming from every direction. But at the same time, Rochelle, if you would not, have gone to school mm -hmm. and done those things, you probably wouldn't have been led in each experience that you had to be where you are. That's so yes, true. you're not actually, you know, using your degree, quote unquote, yeah. right? You're not using it, but you're using it. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Because if you change anything, you change everything, I believe. Right. Right. I, so I if any of those things would have been different, maybe you would have found a, a, you know, another program that you preferred or you liked and just kind of stayed in that safe zone of, okay, I got a good job and I'm here. And, and, and that would have been your life, you know? Yeah. Anything which, could have, anything could have made it different. Mm -hmm. Which but, is tragic. To but you're not. And so for, for you, for my listeners who are, who are only listening to the audio, she is surrounded by all these beautiful colors and designs. And she has this beautiful head wrap. Is that yours, actually? Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Okay, I got to buy it when I get off of here. <laughs> um, so now let's get into the good stuff of Rochelle Porter Designs. Mm -hmm. And let's get into that part. So now okay. you started. The, when did you actually start the business, I guess? Okay. So, and I guess that's the last part of the weird supernatural stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm getting all these messages about fashion and art. None of it is start a business. I, I don't hear that. There's nothing that communicates that to me. Um, but one day I, I think I went to a Target or a Nordstrom after work and it was like, my eyes were open for the first time, even though I've been to Target a million times. So, I noticed that all their like throw pillows and coffee mugs and greeting cards, what have you, had prints on them, which they were there all the time, but I just noticed for the first time. And I also noticed that their prints looked a lot like the stuff that I would doodle when I was bored. 
And it was just kind of like, you know, something opened up and I was like, wait a minute, like, how do people do that? How do people get their artwork or their doodles on product? So started doing my research, um, went to a few trade shows and I found out that what I was doing all the time, which was doodling was actually called surface pattern design, which is, you know, creating prints to put specifically on product. And it was like, you know, a whole world opened up to me. And finally, it's like, okay, this is it. This is actually what all that stuff was about. <laughs> this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing in life. And that was kind of the catalyst for the whole thing. So do you start, you know, researching how to get into stores or is it more no, I wasn't traditional process? Like find an LLC no. or an S corp or figure out the, the, how do you figure out the business part of it? Sure. So initially what I thought the business part of it would look like for me was licensing, which is how most people traditionally have done it. So they'll, they have like a trade show and they'll set up a booth and brands will, you know, whether it's like Nike or a home decor brand or a greeting card brand will commission them to, you know, will license a print or a piece of art from them to put on their product. So I'm like, okay, I guess this is how it's gonna work. But then um, going back to the sustainability piece, you know, and going back to my objections back in the day when I took that class to manufacturing in China, I'm like, okay, if I license, I'm not gonna have any control over the product. I don't know how it's made. I don't know who's making it. I don't know whether they're being exploited. I don't know whether the environment is being ruined <laughs> by their production process. So um, I kind of concluded, not that I'm against licensing and not that I would not do it at some point in my career, but I was like, I gotta make it myself. Like whatever product I put out, I have to be in control of the production. So uh, the first product that I manufactured by myself was actually a throw pillow. And it's not that I have some deep affinity towards pillows <laughs> or anything. It was literally, well, a pillow is a square. I don't have to know anything about um, pattern making. I don't know, I have to know anything about like, you know, the design process. I can literally get my print on a square. And that's how we started. And so, now was that based off of price it, or was it convenience if the, with the, with it the was pillow? Of, it was because I didn't know anything about making anything. <laughs> you know, I, know <laughs> I, I barely can sew. I didn't go to fashion school. I literally don't know how to create a, you know, a tech pack or all, all these terms that fashion people use. I have no idea what any of that is. When I say I didn't know anything, I knew absolutely nothing. So, but I knew a square could, could easily be sewn. I knew I could find somebody to sew it. And I did some research and some Googling and I found a small um, woman owned company in New Orleans at the time. I don't think they exist anymore, but they fabric. So I found somewhere that, um, that provided organic cotton fabric and because I wanted everything to be ethical and sustainable, because if I was going to do it, I was going to do it the way I wanted to do it, <laughs> you know, not the way it's always been done. So found the ethical fabric, had it sent to the company in New Orleans, and they printed 
you know, like this pillow here. So they use like eco-friendly dyes and they send it back to me. And I had a seamstress here locally that sewed it. So it was a very cumbersome process at the time, but you know, you've kind of figured things out as you go along. So how do you go from that one pillow mm -hmm. to scaling to all the other products? Sure. So it was, um, I made a small collection of pillows at first. Um, were you selling and, on Etsy? Were you selling just kind of like at trade shows and just different things like that? So I was not doing any trade shows. Um, I created my own website. First, it was on Squarespace. And this was all while I was working a full-time job. So I did this at night or on the side. Um, created my you know little Squarespace site. Um, it, and it wasn't like, you know, you think if you build it, they will come. They won't. You actually have to market it and promote it. Um, There's a word in there for everyone listening. Yes. <laughs> if you build it, they won't come. <laughs> I mean, they might, but don't count on it. Don't, don't build your business based on that. So um, I actually found out that West Elm in all their local stores, they had pop-up shops. Like they would let independent designers do pop-up shops in their stores. So, you know, I was excited by that. So, you know, went to my local West Elm, had a meeting with the general manager, showed them my product and they really liked it. So in addition to, you know, having my little website that only my friends and family knew about at the time, um, I had a pop-up shop at West Elm and it went pretty well. And then I had another one and another one and another one at my local West Elm. Um, some of those were lucrative financially, some of them weren't, but they were great for raising awareness. And it was also great to be a brand new designer and be associated with a brand like West Elm. So that's kind of how I started getting the word out about the pillows. Um, again, while I love my pillows, I don't have some deep affinity toward home decor. I always cared more about clothes and accessories, but I thought that would be way down the line because again, I didn't know anything <laughs> about fashion design, um, but it happened a lot sooner than I thought it would because I had a friend who she knew I made stuff. And so she came to me for advice because she had this idea about starting an activewear line that featured like traditional African prints. And she's like, can you help me? I was like, I guess. So <laughs> she had got some print somewhere online and she kind of made a prototype of it. And I was like, okay, so do you own the copyright to that print? And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, you have to actually legally own prints before you use them on your product. The only way to get around that, you know, you could either pay hundreds or thousands of dollars for the copyright, or you can design your own prints and put them on your clothing. So she's like, oh, well, uh, could you design some for me? I was like, I guess. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was kind of figuring out how to you know make these prints look like African prints and it wasn't really working but just to kind of test it out and seeing how see how it would look on a mock-up I took some prints that I already had and put them on like a mock-up of a sports bra and a pair of leggings and I was like oh this looks kind of good and I showed it to some other people and they had a 
like I couldn't believe their reaction. They responded way better to that than they had ever responded to throw pillows or any home decor thing that I had made. So it was just kind of a no brainer that I was now in the activewear business. So I want to go back just a little bit with your West mm-hmm. Elm. You said you were able to get a meeting with the general manager. How did mm-hmm. you do that? I literally went to the West Elm and I asked whoever was working at the desk at the time, like, hey, I heard you guys did pop-up shops. I'm interested. And they gave me the contact information of the general manager. Um, I sent her an email. I probably gave her a link to my website, showed her a few of my designs and they liked it. They thought the aesthetic really was kind of in line with what they were doing. And we had a meeting. And then with the manufacturing, can you just Mm -hmm. explain that part just a little bit of how exactly that works for your company? Okay, so the way it worked originally is not how it works currently, thank God. Um, So originally I, I found a company, I think it's like in Alabama somewhere that just provides like blank organic cotton fabric. So just like plain white fabric that's printable. So I order the fabric from there, have it sent to New Orleans to the small company. It was like two women and like a printer, (laughs) you know, a digital printer. So they would print. Was that intentional? Um, It was the only company that I knew about at the time. And I mean, I love that it was a small, you know, boutique woman-owned company. It just happened to fit, you know, my whole ethos and my whole narrative, but it was literally the only company that I could find and that I can afford at the time. So, you know, necessity. So um, I would have it sent to that company and then they would send me back the printed fabric. And then I would take that fabric to my local seamstress here and she would sew it into pillows. So not the most efficient or scalable process. And how has that changed now? So um, until very recently, um, there's a factory that I use outside of Atlanta. Again, it's, it's also a woman-owned factory, but it's a much bigger operation. And they, um, they pretty much do everything. I do get the fabric printed elsewhere because organic cotton fabric is it's special and not everybody can do it. So I have the printed fabric shipped directly to them and they do everything. Um, but we're actually in the process of moving the whole operation overseas because um, we're onboarding uh, several new um, pretty major retailers and we just need somebody who can do the volume. So it's very different from, um, you know, sending my <laughs> fabric to New Orleans to get printed. And then how do you, so how do the, the profit margins here look if you stay here versus sending it overseas? Um, Do they increase significantly? um, Yeah. Is it actually more expensive? Like um, shipping, of course, is more expensive, but um, the price is probably like a quarter of what I pay here to get a product produced. So it's definitely worth it, especially now that I'm, going more into wholesale, you know, I'm working with retailers. So I have to sell it to them at a certain price and they have to mark it up for it to be profitable to them. 
and using our current system of the local factory, that would not be profitable for our business. So we're gonna have to move overseas. A lot of companies do that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a way for us to change that here? Um, to change overseas production or to change companies from moving overseas? The production, just at least some keeping it in the U.S., but still being able to have those same profit margins. How do you think we can change that? Um, I don't know if that's possible. Not if you're working with a, a a third-party retailer. If I was just selling directly to my customer via my website or a pop-up shop or whatever, um, it would be doable and it has been doable. But if I'm on Amazon, um, I wouldn't make any money if I continued to use um, United States production because a living wage here is very different from what a living wage in India or Sri Lanka is. And there are definite benefits to staying in the States, but at the rate that we're growing, um, I don't know if it's possible. And is, what's the benefit for your company to sell direct to consumer versus in retail stores? So when you sell to a retailer, um, whatever profit you make, they get half of it. If they buy directly from you, you keep all the profit. So huge difference. Selling with the retailers, is that just to get more exposure or is there an actual business like benefit to it? I don't have products, so I have, this, this is new sure. and I want people to understand a little more too. It's yeah, definitely more exposure. I mean, I can only go so far on my website, whereas an Amazon or a Wayfair has much greater reach than I do. And honestly, um, when I started this business, I, I made a post on IG the other day that caused a stir, which is that I never refer to my business as a small business. Because from the time I started, my vision was to be a global household name. There's nothing wrong with having a small boutique business that you sell directly from your website or at local you know, shops or at vending events or whatever. That's not my goal. That's not my path. You know, like I want to be as big as I can possibly get. Without so what, what was the stir about people saying you should be humble or some oh, BS or something? I mean, like if they did, I wouldn't. <laughs> it flew over my head if they did. But no, it's the term small business, which there's nothing wrong with having a small business or staying small if that's what you choose to. But I think it. Um, I lost you a video. Oh, are you seeing it? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I think by saying you're a small business, when you actually don't want to be a small business, you're kind of diminishing yourself. And I think your words have power. So you have what you say you will have. If you want a small business, fine, say that. If you um, are small now, but you plan to grow much bigger and you have bigger aspirations for yourself and your business, say that. Like walk in that. So you were featured in Oprah Magazine and on the Today Show, just mm -hmm. two large ones that 
since you're talking about speaking it, I have been in love with Oprah since I was like five. Okay. And I would love to achieve not the, it's not even the success. I feel like she is so great at interviewing that I watch her videos. Yeah. It's something that I aspire to be. So I'm going to speak it out. That yes. I want to be the next Oprah. Okay. It's okay. crazy. It makes me scared, honestly, but <laughs> it should. It absolutely should. Like, uh, I'm know. terrified for like moving overseas, like in COVID. Like, what the hell? Like, that's crazy. Yeah. But that's what it takes. Were you guys affected by COVID? Um, it sounds weird to say, but COVID was probably the best thing to happen to my business. Um, it's in the past year, it's, it's like night and day from what it was before. Because, um, well, first of all, I was working a full-time job since I started my business until this year, <laughs> I was working a full-time job. Um, during COVID, uh, I think the thing that really drew the attention to our business and really um, just brought all those media outlets to us was, well, two things. First of all, COVID and the fact that everybody who did anything related to fabric or fashion started making masks in April of last year. So, um, and there was like a, the demand was huge. People were like ravenous looking for masks. I never aspired to make masks or wanted to. And it took me a while to even get on that train because it was like, eh, everybody's doing it. And then after a while, it's like, wait, everybody's doing it. <laughs> like, I, I need to get on this. So um, we started making masks. And I think the first thing we were featured in it was just a little quote, but it was in Forbes. They were doing an article on businesses that were pivoting to masks during COVID. And that's kind of what got us the first little bit of buzz. And then from there, um, you know, what happened last summer with all the social unrest, with the, you know, George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter movement coming to a fore, which was awful and, you know, still traumatic for a lot of us. But, um, I think mainstream brands first started kind of paying attention to the fact that black lives actually do matter. And hey, maybe we should start supporting black businesses. And hey, maybe the playing field isn't level. So um, there was just more emphasis on black owned businesses during that time. So that brought a lot of media attention too. So, you know, we were featured in Buzzfeed, um, our, official partnership with West Nome happened around that time. Because before then we were just doing pop-up shops, but now the products are actually sold through westelm.com. So there was just a lot that happened in that little short period of time. And it started with COVID. Now were you, what do you, what do you do? What do you think as, as the owner of this design business when people are approaching you to be featured in, in these articles or or on magazines or anything of that nature? Like, how do you feel about that? I mean, I'm extremely grateful and humbled, but also it's like, this is how it's supposed to happen. You know, and I say that with no kind of hubris or whatever. It's like, this is it. This is the vision that I had. This is what all those little whispers from God were. Like, it's unfolding as it should. 
Well, you have to be able to revel in it. Yeah. <laughs> if you uh, don't, well, if you I, don't, you know, if you're not able to be like, pat myself on the back, like who else will? Sometimes yeah. nobody, you don't have to be, you know, arrogant. You can yeah. still be humble. But I think again, as a black woman, we can't, we are not allowed to. So tell people where they can find you and I'll include it in the show notes as well. Sure. So they can find me at rochelleporter.com. It's just my first and last name. That's our main website that has all our products listed and they can find me on social at, at row Porter design. So it's R O P O R T E R design. And that's on IG, Twitter, Facebook, the whole nine. Thanks for listening to the Warrior Her podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another fun episode. Go like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes. Until next time, Warriors, remember, girls really do run the world.